Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Simran Hans. And I'm Catherine Bray. On the show this week, we'll be returning to Woodsboro for some slashes and metatextual snark in Scream, and then journeying through Columbia while being tormented by an unsettling boom in Memoria. In Film Club, we'll be stalked by another ghost-based killer, but a significantly sillier one in parody film Scary Movie. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, new year, new guest. Catherine Bray is joining us this week and it's her first time on the pod, so we have to ask her the all-important question. Catherine, who are you? Uh, I'm many things, including a filmmaker and a film critic. I run a very small um, website called filmoftheweek.co.uk with my pal Guy Lodge. Uh, we, on that site, will recommend for you just one film every week that we think is the most interesting film in any given week of release well that sounds wonderful i mean i say that that sounds wonderful i've, I've been subscribing to it for quite some time <laughs> like, oh, i very you. much so enjoy much. that landing on my in my inbox on fridays and Simran, did you spot when we forgot to send it out the other week <laughs> I did. And I sat in the dark thinking, what will I do this week like, without this guidance in front of me? So Apologies uh, to any crossover Little White Lies listeners slash Film of the Week subscribers. Um, we I'd like to take this opportunity to dominate the Little White Lies podcast with that apology. <laughs> and Zimran, uh, you've been on the pod before, so we don't need to ask you such kind of giant existential questions. But uh, do you have any cultural highlights or kind of films that you're really looking forward forward to have seen of late that you can that you can tell us about well for listeners who don't know me I'm a film critic for the observer and uh, for those who do know me and maybe know my uh, fascination with erotic thrillers I watched Poison Ivy last night starring a 17 year old Drew Barrymore doesn't hold up uh, in the way that I thought it would um, but she does have some great cowboy boots so uh, I did enjoy that yeah, it does seem like uh, the erotic thriller has been on the edge of having a bit of a comeback for like a really long time now. And it does, it's kind of disappointing that uh, Anna de Armas's and Ben Affleck's uh, attempt to, you know, reignite it is going to be buried by Disney. I think, yeah, gutted by that deep water. I thought that that was going to be the start of, as you say, they look like a new cycle of them. But if you can't release an Adrian Line erotic thriller in cinemas, like what? 
what kind of erotic thriller can you release in cinemas? He's the godfather of the genre. But you can go to Amazon Prime and watch The Voyeurs, which I think is quite a fun recent example of the genre. Is that the one where they're spying across the street, bit of a rear window thing? Yeah, with Sydney Sweeney and Justice Smith, two of the least un- the least likely candidates for an erotic thriller, in my opinion. They're so hot, though. Uh, I watched it just for how hot they were. Well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, that sounds absolutely brilliant. Cool. Uh, no, you don't need to send me your email this Friday, Catherine. I've got my weekend sorted. <laughs> uh, cool. So uh, let's get a move on and get into some of these films. Um, it's kind of couldn't be a bigger contrast with what we've got, but we'll start first off with Scream. So Scream. 25 years after the original series of murders in Woodsboro, a new killer emerges. A group of teens is stalked by a ghost-faced killer and legacy characters played by Neve Campbell, Courtney Cox and David Arquette come to their aid. Um, yeah, so this is obviously the fifth instalment, even though it is named Scream. Um, it seems a really sad opportunity that they didn't kind of change the S to a five at least. Um, but Catherine, what's your relationship with this uh, whole Scream franchise and how do you think this installment holds up? Uh, I absolutely love the Scream franchise, obviously started by Wes Craven, the director of Nightmare on Elm Street, and Kevin Williamson, who created Dawson's Creek. So it was this really lovely marriage of an established name in the world of slashers but who could maybe use a bit of a refresh in his career coming together with the hot young writer of uh you know who'd revitalized teen tv um and i think it really holds up as a franchise it's like scream one is such a good whodunit as well as a slasher and scream two i think has so much fun as well um with its cast people like jada pinkett smith although i think she was just jada pinkett at that point scream three Uh, I think is underrated, actually. They had this really tricky timing in terms of landing just after the Columbine massacre at a high school. So they had to really amp up the comedy rather than lean into the idea of like teenagers being murdered. And actually, I think the result works really well. Scream 4, I agree with you, Layla, actually, that Scream 5 missed a trick in inserting the 5 into the name because Scream 4 does that, giving us the glorious title Scriforum. Um, <laughs> and I for me, Scream 4 is the weakest in the franchise, but it's... It's a franchise with less wobbles in it, I would say, than comparable stuff like Halloween. Um, I think the lows are not as low in Scream. I guess we'll get onto that with Scream 5, depending on what you guys thought of it. Wait, so Catherine, you're saying already that you thought that Scream 4 was worse than Scream 5? I am saying that. Are we going to have a fight, Simran? Oh yeah, justice for Scream 4. (laughs) I think Scream 4 is um, probably my second favourite after the first one. Oh wow, this is going to be a good discussion, I can tell already. Well, it's kind of, I think, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, the first Scream were kind of, you know, it's a satire of like the slasher genre. Second one, we're looking at sequels. Third ones, I, I mean, I really don't have much time for Scream. I think it's just kind of, kind of the, a bit of a pointless entry. Four is kind of the remake. And five, uh, we're looking at the, what they call the requel. Uh, like Simran did that, the kind of idea of the re- looking at the requel um, work for you. So in um, in Scream 5, I'm going to call it Scream 5. I'm not going to call it Scream. I think that's going to get confusing. Um, they come up with this idea, or well, they don't come up with the idea, but they kind of elaborate on this idea of the requel, which is part sequel, part reboot, reliant upon including legacy characters to reel in the fans and um, 
kind of keep them hooked. And I just felt that that was not very interesting territory to be kind of exploring on the sort of meta level. Because like Catherine said, the thing that's quite fun about the Scream movies is that they're gory, they're a send-up of the teen horror, but they're also kind of critiquing other more kind of um, more intellectual things, albeit in a very accessible way. And I agree. I haven't seen all of them, to be fair, but I agree that Scream 4 is uh, underrated. And what I like about that is that it's basically a sort of proto-influencer critique. You know, you've got the kids filming and live streaming stuff. And this was in 2011, so YouTube was around. But they're basically YouTubers or kind of TikTokers or an early version of that. And this one is kind of critiquing toxic fandom. And I just think, you know, at least the first Scream had a thesis. This is just like four tweets expanded into a movie um <laughs> zola the horror movie <laughs> well no Z- zola i think is a very a very good film uh, i wouldn't put that in the same category but i was disappointed i was kind of like going in hoping for something that was you know really had its finger on the pulse of you know what we're talking about today and i, I felt that it was just a very kind of top line um understanding or analysis of what's uh, what the situation is with with recalls yeah. I think um, it's a good example of how uh, we kind of bring our expectations to a movie because my expectations were so low for Scream 5. I'll join you in calling it Scream 5. Uh, I was like, this is just going to be a sort of tired reworking of meta horror themes and they're probably going to riff on the requel. So I suppose the fact that I thought that they did that quite well was really pleasurable. So I really enjoyed that you have sort of Gen X in there, the old returning cast, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, uh, Neve Campbell, all of all of that gen of Scream are in there that were on screen in, in the first films in the late 90s. Then you've got the kind of millennial generation of two of the lead characters, so our sort of final girl and her boyfriend. They, fe- I, they felt very me. I'm, you know, just about a millennial. Uh, and then you've also got all of these new Gen Z kids involved. So I really like the way those different generations played off each other. And I think it's obviously marketing, like they're hoping that all of those three generations will be interested in seeing this film. But I thought there was a nice little intergenerational kind of critique at play there. Uh, maybe I'm re- reading into it too much. Well, so like one of the things that happens in the first Scream is that they talk about the rules for a horror movie and they reference a bunch of teen slasher movies that they're sending up. And in this movie, there's like a name drop um, for a couple of modern classic horror films to kind of show that the filmmakers, who themselves are sort of quite well-versed in the genre, right? Like it's made by the guys who made VHS and Ready or Not. Uh... Ready or Not, yeah. they kind of, and, and I think Ready or Not um, seems like quite, um, you can really see the thread between the two of them. It's got that kind of, you know, dark, dark sense of humor. And, and, and like, I th- this is one of the gorier scream entries when, you know, ready or not was, you know, quite happy to have a child explode. So, <laughs> you know, they, they, yeah. they definitely are bringing a slightly, you can see their sensibility, even though they're, I think, playing a close tribute to, um, to Wes Craven. But these these name drops that I'm I'm talking about they they reference the Babadook, Hereditary, It Follows, The Witch, Jordan Peele, and Get Out. And I like that they know that these are the great horror movies of our age. But I don't really think that it's doing anything 
that interesting with those reference points. It's sort of, there's a moment, near, it's not really a spoiler, but there's a moment near the beginning of the film where they criticize, the, the killer criticizes elevated horror. Um, and then we're kind of told that this will not be an elevated horror. This will be an old school slasher, um, which is fine. But those movies are better, you know? Scream is both a homage to and satire of. And I, I felt that, you know... I don't know, this this film, it bugged me. I kind of agree with you that it is a tricky proposition when, when films mention other films that are better, particularly if it seems like they're looking down on them. I don't know whether this was doing that, but the worst example of it I could think of was in the remake of Clash of the Titans, where they criticise heavily the really charming old Ray Harryhausen clash of the titans they're like it had a some mechanical bird and it's like you wish you had something half as charming as the mechanical <laughs> bird from the ray harryhausen that. movie <laughs> but no i don't know i think it, uh, there's space for all different types of horror and i don't know if this was saying that elevated horror should just get in the bin or <laughs> if it was kind of setting out its stall and saying look we're not that you're gonna see i mean what did you guys think of the kills i thought the kills were really well done they were surprisingly brutal to me. I think that was uh, the thing. I, I mean, they were kind of even the people that they chose to kill. It's kind of spoilers. But yeah, there were some moments of like impressive nastiness, which, um, you know, I, I, I love a slasher film. So I, I kind of found that quite reassuring. I think that, that they go with a little bit more than just like the power of suggestion. Like, no, you're going to see a knife very, very slowly <laughs> gut someone. I'm very squeamish. So um, th those kills worked on kind of making me shudder and, and, you know, be terrified. But um, yeah, I thought it was significantly gorier than any of the previous ones, actually. Apart, I guess, well, Scream 1 does have gore, but it's much more um, kind of paced out. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like um, that first kill in the first original Scream is very brutal, but it's not kind of incessant, whereas every single kill in this new one I, I thought was was quite brutal um which i suppose is, is what you want from the genre right yeah there was a nice gender equality in the stalk and slash sequences like i love a good stalk and slash sequence and historically it would be that you know a dude would get shot in the head or stabbed immediately and women will get kind of chased for like 10 minutes mm. um in this, you know, the guys are getting their, their, I won't sort of spoil quite how anything happens, but you, there's at least as much terror and prolonged stalk and slash going on with the boy characters. And I think that's progress. Well, it certainly is. And it's certainly a more uh, diverse group of characters than we've kind of had in our previous entries. But I think for me, the thing that I love so much about Scream, and that was, you know, I'm the perfect person for this sort of fan service thing, because I watched this film when I was 12, like 57 times, I played it at my birthday parties. Like, you know, I am the sort of nightmare fan that uh, that, that really like does uh, love this. And I think what was so special about the first Scream is that it was sincerely very scary and very funny and like very, you know, satirically smart. And for me, this one was not scary, but I laughed and laughed and laughed. And I think it is quite difficult to elicit a laugh from me in a cinema, but I truly like think there were moments of like true hilarity, which to me kind of, not entirely, but somewhat compensated for the fact that a little bit a bit of it was kind of a bit naked cash grabby for me. I think just because you comment on kind of a naked cash grab and like, haha, we're doing a sequel or a requel just to kind of 
get a load of money from our devoted fans. Just because you kind of comment on that, I don't think it entirely excuses it. Yeah, it could leave a sour taste. Um, but I, I did like that there were these little touches of kind of we, we know and love these films. They brought Red Right Hand back on the soundtrack, which I think was missing from Scream 4. The Nick Cave song, obviously, the, whose title is a, a John Milton reference, references the epic poem Paradise Lost, uh, which is intentional in the Scream universe. The movie producer in Scream 3, I think it is, is called John Milton. Um and it's nice to see that back on the soundtrack. I think there's lots of those little details. We see a street sign for Elm Street, which is obviously a reference. And when she's in hospital, oh, I won't say who's in hospital, but when someone is in hospital, um, she's watching Dawson's Creek, which is obviously a little shout out to Kevin Williamson. Um, so I like that there were those little moments kind of bedded into it to tie it into the rest of the franchise. But as you say, obviously, it is a film that's been made to make money. Um, do you guys think it will? A hundred percent. I didn't think going into it, but uh, now, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it kind of turned bank. Um, yeah, and just before we kind of wrap things up, I was just wondering, you know, it's a very, very crowded cast. We've got a huge number of, uh, we were introducing a, 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 a whole new bunch of people across, you know, three generations as well as our legacy characters. Was there anyone that like stood out for you as being particularly interesting or, or really not working? One of the, the great things about this franchise is that um, in all its iterations, they're very clever in kind of casting the hot young things of the time. In the first one, you have Rose McGowan and Drew Barrymore and Matthew Lillard, who was, sort of went on to be massive teen stars. And then sort of a generation later, uh, Scream 4, Justice for Scream 4, um, <laughs> you have Emma Roberts and... Hayden Panettiere and all these kind of like random people now who maybe they haven't, their careers haven't continued on the trajectory that they might have been when these films first came out. But I feel like they sort of capture a moment. And uh, in this film, I was like, oh, it's the dude from 13 Reasons. It's the cute guy from Booksmart. It's um, Vanessa from In the Heights. It's the son of Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan. Um, There are quite a lot of familiar faces, but I think it could have it could have gone more meta and kind of more clever with with the casting. However, I love Mason Gooding. I think he's great. He's the cute guy from Booksmart who plays one of the the twins. Um, And I I thought that Jenna Ortega, um, who plays Tara, she's sort of the youngest protagonist. I thought she had an amazing face. There's something so vulnerable and young looking about her. Um, She had like an innocence that that I thought really worked. Um, I thought that her sister, played by uh, Melissa Barrera, was was not as strong. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, Jack Quaid, who plays the boyfriend. I mean, that's an interesting role in the Scream franchise because you're always wondering, is it the boyfriend? Is it not the boyfriend? And I think he does a really nice job of playing with those expectations. Obviously, we won't say how it resolves, but I you're scrutinizing that performance and I think to deliver a performance where sometimes you're like oh I know it's him and then sometimes you're like oh wow I feel really guilty um you know how could I have suspected this poor innocent guy it's sort of the same thing that Jerry O'Connell is doing in Scream 2 um but yeah I think he's a star and the twins both of those actors playing the twins like full star charisma would watch either of them in anything kind of going forward 
Well, I mean, if you have a chance, Jasmine Savoy Brown, who kind of plays Randy from the first Scream's niece, who's a kind of new stand-in movie. She is absolutely phenomenal in a show called Yellow Jackets. And and, and I loved with her, because I believe in real life, she's like almost 30. And I love this return to like people in their late 20s and early 30s playing high schoolers. It kind of, <laughs> you know, I have a warm nostalgia for that. So uh, yeah, let's try and do some scores. Uh, Simran, I'll come to you first. So um, in anticipation, enjoyment, and uh, in retrospect. I think I'm going to go four, three, two. Um, I didn't hate the experience of watching it. There were some laughs, there were some jumps. Um, but overall, I was you know, excited for this movie and I, I was a bit disappointed. Oh, Catherine, slightly more positive, I, I imagine. Yeah, I mean lower on anticipation because I went in very low. So let's say let's say a one. Um and then while I was watching it, I was so caught up in it. I don't necessarily know if the final wrap up works, but up to that point I was like, This is scream, I'm into it, this is a five, I'm really enjoying myself. In retrospect and kind of having talked to Simran, who makes some very good points, maybe it's a three. Uh it's a three or a four. Uh, yeah, I think I'm I'm closer with, with you, Catherine. Um, yeah, maybe a, a two or a three coming in, you know, ex, you know, hoping for the best, but, you know, preparing for Scream 3. Um, enjoyment 4, like, I, I just kind of couldn't get past how funny it was. And, like, even as silly as it is, particularly David Arquette, lands, he, I can't even spoil what it is, he says a line about when he's been insulted by someone and it makes him very sad that I think is like the most I've laughed in in, in months. Um, but in retrospect, three, I mean, it's perfectly fine. I think it's a perfectly enjoyable hour and a half at the cinema. Well, no, it's not quite long, isn't it? Two hours and a bit at the cinema. But, you know, not, you know, Scream 4 still ranks higher for me. And <laughs> and obviously nothing Scream touching. <laughs> yeah, this is probably just, you know, middle entry, perfectly fine, um, perfectly enjoyable, nothing nothing revolutionary. But I but I do think, you know, at the end it comes up and they have four Wes at the end. And I felt Wes Craven probably would have quite liked this film at least. And I will say I'm going to go back and see it with an audience because as I, I suspect you guys all saw it um, with critics in like a big, empty, socially distanced maybe middle of the day kind of screening. I want to see that with a bunch of people with popcorn and drinks on a Friday night. And I, I think it's a film that will benefit from that atmosphere. Yeah, I agree. So uh, let us know what you think. You can email Truth and Movies at TCO London and tweet us at LW Lies and let us know your thoughts on Scream or Scream 5. Either title is acceptable. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. 
Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Memoria stars Tilda Swinton as Jessica Holland, a British expat living in Colombia, who, after hearing a loud bang at daybreak, starts experiencing a mysterious sensory syndrome. While traversing the jungles of Colombia, she experiences auditory hallucination and tries to find the source of the sounds causing her insomnia. Soon, she begins to question the unsettling sights and sound that call her identity into question. So this is um, the first uh, the first English language film, or well, English and Spanish film, from uh, director Apichon Wirasakathil, probably best known for Uncle Bunmi, who can recall his past lies, which is one of the more unusual films to ever win the Palme d'Or back in 2010. And uh, this film also premiered at Cannes and has much of the kind of dreamy qualities and unconventional structures of his past film. Uh, Simran, what did you think of Memoria? I kind of love this film. I didn't have um, a lot of kind of prior context for uh, the films of A Pidget Pong and uh, I wasn't really kind of... I don't know what I really expected. I, I knew that this might be sort of slow cinema, um, which, you know, I have I have some time for. Um, but I, I kind of went in and got totally absorbed by the world of the film and the sort of pace and the rhythm of it. There are a lot of kind of silences and pauses and moments where you just have to kind of pay attention and sit with what's happening uh, on screen and I, I kind of love that it really helped me to to get immersed in it um one of the things that um this film is about is sound and so Tilda Swinton is hearing this phantom sound and she describes it as a kind of large rock that's being dropped into a well that's surrounded by seawater and this sound is kind of both earthy and metallic. And it turns her into a kind of zombie. And I just love her wandering around in a sort of dreamlike state and being really confused and flustered and not and sort of not really knowing what's going on. Um, and so from a kind of, uh, I don't know, like immersive um, point of view, I, I, I really like that about the film. But then as it progresses, and I, I guess we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get into more detail about the plot, um, I thought some of the ideas that it was exploring really, really stayed with me, um, thinking about the sort of, what do we mean by a reverberation and, and what's the kind of like metaphorical aspect of, of a, a sound that haunts us. I, I thought that was really interesting. Catherine, um, you know, Tilda Swinton, one of our kind of great actors, I think widely agreed. Like, do you do you find her as compelling in this film as you as she often is? She's fantastic in this. And I think it's the perfect example of something that she's done really interestingly throughout her career. So Tilda Swinton starts out in the 1980s as the muse of experimental filmmakers like Derek Jarman very art world and then in the 90s you see her popping up in film franchises like Narnia as the the white witch in the lion the witch in the wardrobe 
and I a lot of celebrities will say uh, you know oh, I do my my personal projects and I do my big blockbuster projects and what they really mean is that the they'll do a marvel and then they'll do I don't know knives out or something um but Tilda is really you know walking the walk she will she will pop up in a marvel film but then she's off doing her version of the personal project is proper hardcore gallery installations festivals she did a film about john berger the art critic which i think she maybe wrote and directed called seasons at quincy um i did not like it but i respected it and Mm. this is a really good example of doing that like she's working with a filmmaker who is renowned palm door winner um but this is his very first film in the english language which i think is often a bit of a risk there's numerous examples of people like i don't know like one car why uh my blueberry nights was his first english language film and it was kind of like it didn't really work so i think it's really great that she's teaming up with him and she's written about his work before i think so it's not like completely fresh collaboration but um, I think having her presence there in this film really helps uh, situate the audience in it with a screen presence that they're familiar with. And yet the style of film may also be very unfamiliar. Uh, if you haven't seen any of this director's films before, it might be a little bit of a shock. But at the same time, it's also his most accessible piece. So I think it's a fantastic use of Tilda Swinton's screen presence. Yeah, it's interesting you you um, refer to it as being a bit like an artwork because I believe in America they're doing this very unconventional release with this film where they're kind of touring it like a single artwork on what they're calling like a never-ending release where it's just going to go from one place, one city, one theatre at a time. And uh, luckily in England, it's slightly more accessible for the rest of us. It's coming out in cinemas this weekend. <laughs> um, but yeah, it kind of is kind of, you know, looking at that boundary a little bit between... I suppose what you'd call the art film and, you know, a regular, you know, a straightforward narrative cinema. And it's funny, Sibrin, when you mentioned about those silences, I actually remember watching this and several times I had to check that I hadn't accidentally paused it because there is such, you know, long protracted moments of like of silence and stillness. But um, I, I just thought it was kind of completely mesmerizing and um, I was really, really captivated by it. Um, there are some kind of twists that I suppose that come um, as the film goes on. Did those generally work for you, Simran? Yeah. So w- without wanting to kind of um, sort of give too much detail or, or, or spoiler it too much, I think you know the the things that w- I think it needs to be explained somehow. I'm I'm trying to think the best way to do it. So so basically, T- Tilda Swinton is wandering around, hearing this phantom noise. She gets a sound engineer to try and reconstruct it. Uh, and then she's sort of told by everybody that this guy never existed. Uh, and then later on in the film, she meets another guy who is not the same man, but has the same name. And she's in the jungle, laying on the grass with this lovely dude, who's sort of a medium for memories. And, you know, of course, you know... Memories are stored in our bodies, but also, you know, in the ground that we walk on, the water we drink, the air we breathe. And this guy is so sensitive to that that he sort of stayed away from the noise of the developed world because it's sort of too overwhelming. And what I really like about that as sort of a, a twist um, is the way that the film itself creates sensations that can only really be felt and not described. And I think the way that, you know, 
the film uses the language utilizes the language of cinema to communicate that is just so kind of mind-blowing um and it does that through these kind of yeah long takes where you're forced to kind of sit with things and just experience something in your body while you're watching it um I'm really interested to hear a bit more from you Layla about how you experience watching it on um on like a home viewing because I saw this in the cinema and I felt that really kind of helped um but I wonder how it played for you on a, a kind of smaller screen you know it was actually um a bit of a kind of trickier experience because I kind of first started watching it and I found myself getting distracted because it is kind of you know so silent and it takes it from you so I kind of had to do a sensory deprivation for myself and like turn off the lights make sure that everything else, my phone wasn't in the room, get headphones on so I could actually get immersed in it. Because I think it does require that of you. And and I do feel jealous that you saw it in the cinema because I imagine that kind of incredible sound design that it has would have been all the more, um, you know, uh, you know, you would have been more consumed by it. I would have been more consumed by it had I been in the cinema. But I, I, I think I kind of got close enough that I was able to f- fall into the film's rhythms. And I think it's worth saying, you know, um, the film is set in Colombia and Mm. Colombia is a country that has experienced like, you know, more than five decades of violent conflict. And so I think what is being said with the film is that these reverberations and this phantom sound that keeps being heard um, is the the echo of of a kind of generational trauma and the echo of, of guilt. And I really, again, like not to get all kind of A-level film studies, but I just love that idea of sort of feeling and hearing and experiencing a memory as like affect in the body and, and the land absorbing the brutality of, of human struggle. I, I just think that's genius. Are you going to go with the lofty heights of genius, Catherine? <laughs> Yeah, and to give you a bit of context, I was really uh, dreading this one. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, there was a bit of kind of critical beef, a bit of a feud a few years ago around the idea of slow cinema and whether it was okay or not to say that you didn't enjoy it, Um, which obviously is always okay to say that you didn't enjoy a piece of cinema, but the terms with which you express that... other people also have the right to judge you but I would have fallen down on the side of I am not sure about all of this slow cinema or contemporary contemplative cinema as as some people call it Um, I've had so many experiences at film festivals of wondering whether I should leave because a film is not connecting with me and I feel like I'm trapped in somebody else's indulgences and I think Cemetery of Splendour and Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives, previous films by Apichet Pong. Um, I struggled with those, I'll be honest. And so I went into this thinking, uh, and I was watching it at Cannes, so there hadn't, there were no reviews out there yet. I didn't know what I was going into and I was expecting something along the same lines. And so what a relief that this just connected with me. It was so poetic. As you say, Simran, that idea of trauma that resonates in the body of the land as well as our bodies. um, It's almost one of those pieces where if you talk about it too much, it feels like you're trying to, you know, dance about architecture, that famous phrase. Um, So it is quite hard to articulate. 
Um, but that that plotlessness, the sort of slowness, the wordlessness in, in large sections of it, I think works in a cinematic setting. And I can also completely see how on a small screen at home, I would have been wondering about whether I was going to go and make a cup of tea. I would have been looking around the room to see what the cat was up to. I think it really needs that that cinematic experience. I can see why they've done what they've done with it in, in the US. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I it, yeah, it did take me that, that little bit of time getting it into. But once I, I sort of, I found myself getting very fascinated by Tilda Swinton and like her disconnection with the world around her and, you know, how kind of alien she feels within Colombia. I mean, not just as an expat, but she just truly feels like she might be kind of almost partially in a different dimension. And I found that so engrossing that even, you know, with, you know, with all of the, all of the ability to snack and uh, to go and have a potter around the house available. I, I, I did, I did very much for, um, enjoy Memoria. Um, so let's get some scores on this. Catherine, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, the the fear of being trapped in somebody else's poetry and not engaging with it. I, I went in as a, let's say a two, um, but as as it unfolded to begin with it was a little bit oh it's going to be this again and i haven't connected with this guy but the the relief we were up to a five mid film this is absolutely genius i'm completely immersed in this man's vision um and in tilda's face which i think we should say is doing a lot of the work here and then in retrospect i'm just going to take it down to a four because i'm not itching to run out and immediately watch it again it felt like a very particular moment that I experienced in time at that particular film festival and I'm almost frightened of trying to repeat that so I don't know whether it's a film that you would watch over and over again Mm. Simran what about you uh for me I I think I'll go three four four I was sort of heard quite good things about it but again like not super bothered um and then when I watched it I just found myself getting really absorbed and I've, I've thought about it quite a lot since I saw it um and so it's it's really stayed with me so yeah I, I definitely recommend this movie oh yeah um I think fours across the board from me um you know I I came to it much later so I'd kind of seen all of these like wonderful responses to it and I just feel that Tilda never lets me down and then I yeah I just relaxed into it and kind of felt it rather than experienced it away and um yeah i think i um, i actually do think i am going to go see it again i'm going to try the cinematic experience because i reckon i could probably get to a five if i was if, if if i kind of could fully just immerse myself in it and maybe we should say it's a great place to start with this director's work as well mm. i i almost wish i'd seen this one first because i am now going to go back and revisit the other stuff that i couldn't find a way into before because i think this may be the film that gives me the way into that back catalog well what could be a better recommendation than that um so if you've got thoughts on uh, memoria please email us at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at lw lies next up film club In Scary Movie, a group of teenagers are stalked by a familiar masked movie madman in the satirical slasher that spawned a generation of movie parodies. Well, I think we are, you know, all millennials. We are the generation that suffered through the movie parody generation, <laughs> which was, I did my entire teenage years, there was the scary movies, there was uh, 
Meet the Spartans, not another teen movie, all of these things. We are, are you a fan of this genre, Simran? Um, I I don't think I would describe myself as a, a fan of the genre. I'm on the slightly young end of people who would have enjoyed this film when it first came out because this movie was released in 2000. Um, and so I kind of remember it in the culture, but I, di- I didn't watch it at the time. And even Scream, I, I came to a little bit later. Um, and I watched this for the first time for this podcast. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so I didn't have the benefit of any kind of nostalgia to sort of help me along um you know we don't need to get on get too we don't really need to get into the granular of how this movie is equal opportunities offensive but it is homophobic transphobic fatphobic ableist misogynistic um and all other sorts of uncomfortable to watch i think yeah, and and I think proudly so. It's definitely this kind of style that's, tr- you know, it's kind of begging you to be offended by it. <laughs> um, but yeah, Catherine, I mean, I watched this in the cinema when it first came out, and I, I don't remember thinking that it was that great. But um, what about you? Um, so, you know, I'm a fan of slasher movies and gross-out comedy. Uh, I, I was thinking while I was re-watching... Um, scary movie for this podcast like what is it about putting yourself through something that I like so much so this is obviously a parody of uh Scream and I know what you did last summer it was I think actually it was even the the working title was Scream if you know what I did last Halloween (laughs) uh and the title scary movie was the working title from Scream so it's all very kind of mishmash self-referential um and yeah, so as I say, I love a gross out comedy and this is a gross out comedy parodying films that I love. So I'm sort of set up to like it, particularly as a teenager, which I which I was when this film um, first came out. But I think, okay, so I think in horror, this is going to be a little theory, so stick with me. I think in horror, horror does lots of different things. An elevated horror might make you think about society, a horror with lots of jump scares, but not a lot of gore. That's almost like being, you know, tickled that's quite pleasurable you're jumping all over the place but it's not like hard to watch and then there are the saw cycle type films hardcore gore torture porn that you're watching almost to see whether you can and it really often feels quite unpleasant you're like oh why am i why am i doing this to myself and comedy operates in a similar way so you have sort of satires which can be quite smart and they're elevated and all of that stuff and you have comedy that's sort of dumb sight gags um one-liners that hit you like a jump scare and tickle you and it's quite pleasurable and you move on and then you have films like scary movie which i think are the sort of like putting yourself through a saw film it's really challenging because a lot of the humor, like maybe 50% of the jokes are like, I, oh, that is awful, that is offensive, that is reprehensible. And then 50% of the jokes are really funny and making me laugh mm. and I'm charmed by the cast and uh, the surrealism and this almost Ren and Stimpy-like existential absurdity. And you never know which it is going to be next, whether you're going to be sort of there kind of going, wow, that is awful, or they're going oh my God, that's hilarious. I can't believe they did that. And that's what I enjoy about a film like this. In addition, of course, to what Simran referenced, the nostalgia of remembering being a teenager and losing it to parodies of a Budweiser commercial. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this movie would have worked better if I was like 
10 or 12 watching it i mean actually maybe it was a bit extreme for a 10 year old but i think that's the age level of the humor is like 12 year old boy however i did laugh at some bits um i thought it was very funny to see the scream mask's face distorted into a grin while it was high i (laughs) thought it was very funny when i believe it's carmen electra who farts in the opening scene as the uh, the bimbo who gets killed. Um, and I, I did quite enjoy Regina Hall watching Shakespeare in Love and pirating it on her camcorder in the cinema. Um, I, I, it, it wasn't irredeemable, um, but I was just quite, I guess, surprised to be reminded of a kind of comedy that I don't really think exists anymore. Yeah, I mean, this is a film that did kind of really do a lot for the careers of Anna Faris and um, and the Wayans brothers. And um, but I think in particular Regina Hall, you can really see like the nuggets of like the fantastic actress that I think she she that she really really is. Like her physical comedy skills, she's really witty. Just like her delivery on like a lot of lines, um, like where she's talking about like the shame of having hooked up with a backup dancer rather than a bodyguard because at least a bodyguard can get you backstage at the concert like I was really (laughs) laughing at that and there was a couple of moments even with Anna Faris one where she just runs away dramatically which I didn't think was um was you know just a very simple stupid joke that I couldn't help but find funny but yeah it's you know modern day lens is what it is and and comedy ages in the way that it does that a lot of it was just very um, uncomfortable. I mean, it's, <laughs> the thing is that with it was that there's so many gay jokes that it almost circles back down. And just like, is this championing queer representation at this point? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of so relentlessly gay. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, it's... It's really, when something pushes that far, I think it starts to become really interesting to observe your own responses and kind of realise what stuff really sets you off and what stuff you're like, okay, I'm going to laugh at this. And it's like, actually, why is that okay? And that's not okay. So it's a really good exercise in self-challenge as well as, I mean, just it is really very funny to me and lots of it. I think Anna Faris um, and Shannon Elizabeth and Regina Hall. The women, I think, are better than the men. And I was thinking about why that is. And I think it's it's because the performances in this film, when they work, they work in the same way as something like Naked Gun, where Leslie Nielsen is playing it absolutely straight down the line. He's not playing it like he knows it's a spoof. And the women in this film have been in a lot of teen comedy stuff like American Pie where Shannon Elizabeth has to wander around naked half the time um and that's an exercise in doing that like they have to play these sort of ridiculously written sex objects completely straight down the line in teen movies so when they port that over to a comedy and play it straight down the line it's so much funnier than some of the dudes are sort of giving these big performances like they know they're in a comedy and actually it doesn't work as well as just playing it completely straight well yeah I think on that on that matter playing something straight kind of suggests that you you believe it for the purposes of the joke right um Mm -hmm. whereas with the men what I can't remember which actor but there's one scene where uh Anna Faris's friend is sort of like kicking her and, and beating her in like quite a graphic way Catherine's laughing because so maybe she finds this scene <laughs> funny 
You know, you know. I the find meat- the extreme violence really funny in this film. I'm sorry, that's just me. Yeah. Um, but I was, re- I was really shocked at that. I was like, oh my god, like that would never. Maybe it's just, a, a, I don't know what it is. My own kind of almost puritanical impulses kind of flaring up. Um, but I found like certain certain moments really push my buttons, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't funny. Um, but I do think it's it's worth saying that this film is. I think, and maybe you uh, you would agree with me being the expert on this, Catherine, having produced um, Beyond Clueless, which was about teen movies. But I feel like this is more of a parody of teen movies than um, horror movies in general. Um, Because, you know, we have Dawson's Creek and Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of poked fun at as well. It's not just the kind of the teen slasher. And um, I guess maybe the specificity of the genre um, helps to make it funnier. Yeah, it's really attuned to the film grammar of those kinds of pieces of media. Uh, the DOP really knows what they're doing. They're following the kind of classic, like the way that those movies will often have a, a pan up to kind of look at the cra- look at the main characters from above as if they're being stalked. And it does that, but it does it to an absurdist extent. There's loads of examples of that kind of thing in there which I really enjoy and even the actors you can tell that they've studied the originals really well like they'll be a bit in screen where Neve Campbell is doing like a little sort of slightly twitchy eye thing and Anna Faris will do the exact same thing Mm. but way more Um, so there's something about the specificity of that love and attention to detail to the things that they're taking off that I think is uh, well I really like it anyway. Yeah, but you're right. There's like so much of the humor is completely indefensible. Oh yeah, um, no, I, the trans <laughs> stuff in particular was utterly like I just found myself like feeling quite depressed for ten minutes afterwards. You, you mean the scene with the female bodybuilder whose mm-hmm. debut role this is as Miss Man? Yeah, that that scene's not great. Yeah, but you know, I, it, again, it's kind of weirdly I find this less kind of you know I don't know d- distressing to kind of look back on is I recently rewatched the American Pie films and my word because at least this film is kind of trying to be willfully offensive and pushing those buttons and be in very poor taste well something like American Pie you're supposed to like love these guys and be rooting for them as they sexually assault a young woman and broadcast her all over the internet to all of her classmates and then she gets deported Yes, <laughs> it's such a good point. I, actually, watching something like Friends, which is meant to be cuddly mainstream entertainment, uh, when the fat phobia or homophobia pops up in that, mm. and it's not being critiqued in any way, I think it's to me like, it gives me more of a moment than something like Scary Movie, where they are absolutely deliberately trying to hit every single button that they can think of um, at a gag rate of something like you know one joke every 10 seconds it's it's really like spraying shit at the wall and hoping some of it will make you laugh which which in my case it it does um i'm not sure if that makes me a terrible person it kind of made me interested to go back and rewatch white chicks and to see which is another film (laughs) by the way and no simran don't do it to yourself white (laughs) chicks is beyond Yeah, I mean, it's funny that these these were kind of such such a big deal at the time. Like this, it just seems like such a kind of tiny little 
cheap, silly film, but I mean, this made hundreds of millions of dollars and like launched all these careers in the same way that, you know, not another teen movie gave us Chris Evans. And like, you know, we're still, a lot of these actors are still kind of at the top of their game all these years later. Although it's, it seems a shame that not much happened with Shannon Elizabeth. Cause I actually felt like, whilst I didn't really like her in American Pie, she's got some like solid comedy chops in this. I thought she was really funny. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good point. And I think it is, yeah, it's really interesting to think about how successful this film was. It made so much money. I think it held the record for the highest grossing black directed film worldwide for ages until um, maybe Get Out came along in 2017. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow yeah <laughs> wow well we could, what, what a note to leave it on um, ooh, well uh let's put some scores on this Catherine in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect Catherine, i think you have to answer this for like a rewatch not for like your original <laughs> viewing of it <laughs> okay well um i guess since anticipation it was based on how i felt about it when i was a teenager um like anticipation was a five um, but the experience of watching it, I don't know, it's like being on a roller coaster where you are hating it and loving it at the same time. Has anyone ever given a one under five in the same beat for enjoyment? Yes. Go for can it. Can I do that? Well, I mean, I don't know whether it's done before, but you can certainly do that. Um, and then in retrospect, um, I guess, I guess it's a three if i'm honest kind of balancing out the problems with the achievements which i do think exist but then you can't ignore the problems with it and a lot of it is pretty noxious but then a lot of it is genius as well yeah i'll give it a three simran what about you for me i was quite interested to see this film i i hadn't watched it at the time and i i you know it's sort of a, a cultural relic that I was curious about. So let's call my anticipation uh, a four or a five. Uh, upon watching, I, I have to say, I experienced the roller coaster much like Catherine. There were some uh, some moments of genuine laughter, um, which may not have peaked at a five for me. Maybe maybe edging towards a four, uh, and some some minus ones as well. Uh, of oh my god, I can't believe this film got made. Um, but actually, talking about it and thinking about it, um, I'm gonna settle on a solid three. I do think. Um, it's worth watching if you've not seen it before and you enjoyed the Scream movies or I Know What You Did Last Summer, I do think that uh, you might get something out of it. And it's on Netflix anyway. Uh, yeah, I suppose for me, probably in anticipation, like I really was, I think I'm probably the exact age that got completely overwhelmed by these types of films and uh, they were coming out constantly and by the end they're so bad and Charlie Sheen is in them all. Um, and yeah, so maybe a two in anticipation. Um, enjoyment, again, maybe like a two or a three, but like in retrospect a three, because I'm really, you know, this film gave me Regina Hall and I still absolutely love her. So thank you to the Wayans brothers for that. Um, so let us know what you think about uh, all of these, well, Scary Movie and all of these films. Uh, you can email us at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, Michael is back. Guillermo del Toro turns to film noir in Nightmare Alley. Kenneth Branagh sets a coming-of-age tale during the Troubles in Belfast, and for Film Club, we'll be returning to Del Toro's first feature, Kronos. Subscribe wherever you pod. If your podcast player of choice lets you leave a review, we'd love you to leave one for us. 
Truth in Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for Little White Lies. Truth in Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Simran Hans and Catherine Bray. The podcast is produced by Ellie Aitken and Harold McShiel and is edited by Steph Watts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.